Hello, everyone. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write, it's also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. My interview with slam poet sensation Sabrina Benaim is up there now. What an interesting young woman. What a life she's had. Check that out at authormagazine.org. And we're funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association. Supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. They have a writing conference, uh, writing, well, they have writing conference every year, but they have a writing contest. Yes, they do. Unpublished novel contest. And, um, well, it, you know, that's for the fall, but they're already taking submissions. What do you think of that? Yeah. So get it in there. It's prestigious. It's led to great things for people. So if you want to be one of those people, go check it out. Well, okay, so this is my last show for 2021. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off after this. But it's a good day. Good day. Uh, the 14th, my, the audiobook version of Everyone Has What It Takes, A Writer's Guide to the End of Self-Doubt. That drops today, I believe. So go get it, man. It's a great gift for anyone who has any doubt whatsoever. Yes, it's the perfect gift. They can't unwrap it but you can get him, make him a cool card and give it to him that way, right? Yes, why not? It's digital. It's modern. It's how we do it now. Check it out. Everyone has what it takes. Writer's Guide to the End of Self-Doubt. Love it. I read it, of course, and I loved doing it. So, you know, you can't get enough of me in your ears, then go, you know, go check it out. Uh, what? Listen, like I said, last show of the year, a lot of fun, and it's good. We got a returning guest. Yes, Gabrielle Myers. Remember her? Well, if you don't, I'm going to tell you about her. She's a professor, writer, and chef. Her memoir, Hive Mind, details her time of love, awakening, and tragic loss on an organic farm. Her poetry manuscripts have been a top finalist for the Catamaran West Coast Poetry Prize, uh, 14 Hills Evergreen Review. Uh, wait, oh, wait, sorry, I'm sorry. No, West Cape, po- so let's start again. Her poetry manuscripts have been top finalists for the Catamaran West Coast Poetry Prize and the 42 Mile Press Poetry Award. Her poetry has been published in the Adirondack Review, San Francisco Public Press, 14 Hills, Evergreen Review, Pacific Review, Connecticut River Review, Catamaran, and Borderlands, Texas Poetry Review. She has led writing workshops for the Pacific Writing Conference at the University of the Pacific, WordSpring in Chico and San Joaquin Valley writers and participated in a panel at the Great Valley Book Fest. And oh, she's with us now because she's got a new poetry collection out. Gabrielle, whew, I almost didn't make it through that intro. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to be here with you today. Well, I'm happy to have you back. Uh, congratulations on the new um, on the new collection uh too many seeds too many seeds and um familiar subject matter i think uh for people who enjoy your work who enjoy your memoir but uh so let me ask you something let me ask you something gabriel since i'm interviewing you um you'd like to you're obviously nature food 
the land important to you? Probably as a person, as a writer. Were you a nature girl growing up, or were you like a city person who discovered nature later on? I would say I was a city person who discovered nature later on in many ways. I grew up in a yeah. suburb uh, right outside of oh. D.C., and so That's like right. a suburb, you're kind of in that middle ground between the city and the country. Yeah. You're not quite rural. You're not quite urban. And yep. so I navigated the space of the local mall. I grew up in the 80s, you know, and it was a cool yeah. thing to oh. do to hang out at the oh. local mall and go yeah. shopping. Uh, but we also had a backyard, and there was a little creek going through our backyard. Ooh. And I remember spending hours and hours back there, usually just by myself, sometimes with my sister yeah. um, or with the other neighborhood kids playing and just having such a great time watching the water flow, playing in a bamboo forest and kind of embracing that wow. aspect of nature. Also, my parents were really into gardening when I was growing up, and so I have uh-huh. fond memories you know, of spending time in the family garden and cultivating corn and broccoli and cabbage and so forth with them. Uh, so I have those, those fond memories that kind of oh. lead back in, I think, to so, the natural space often. Yeah. You know, the garden, there's this, like, the garden that is flowers is lovely. It's artistic, kind of. I mean, it's nature, but it's somewhat artistic, I think, the flower-based garden. But the vegetable based garden it seems to me different because you're going to eat it there's something so um i don't know it gets you back because you know i only eat things i actually have an apple tree in my backyard but you won't want to eat these apples anymore nice. but but one, i made one pie when i first moved in but you know there's something different about eating something that you grew it, it i think it has a gives you a slightly different relationship to the food doesn't it I think it does. It always tastes better and you always really appreciate how long it took to get that fruit or that vegetable on your plate. And you remember when it was really small and it was barely uh, yeah. an inch tall or the the actual plant was only an inch tall and then to see it grow uh, stems and leaves and flowers and then actually fruit into like a pepper or tomato. It's an like yeah. amazing experience, I think, to witness. Yeah. And, and uh, well, so, and where was writing all, you know, sitting by a creek, I got to say, of all, if, to all the things to have in your backyard, man, an actual moving body of water, that, what a treat, I have to say. I, it, it, how relaxing, how cool, how meditative, I guess, if you're into that, <laughs> I, even as a girl, as a young person. Uh, yeah. When, where did writing fit into all this? When did that start rising up in your mind? So I really started writing a lot when I was in high school. Uh, I had always struggled with reading and writing. Uh, Believe it or not, I have dyslexia. And so Mm. for me, learning how to read was actually extremely challenging. I remember in first grade, I was in the lowest reading group, and it was so low, nobody else was in it but me and a tutor. (laughs) And, you know, I just – I remember – learning how to read as being this great accomplishment. And I could finally understand what for months had eluded me. (laughs) And because of that, I think because of that struggle reading and then the act of writing has always seemed so special to me and so important. Um, And so, you know, my father has dyslexia and he actually is the best reader I've ever met. And he taught me how to read how he reads. 
Um, uh-huh. And so I try not to view it as a deficit. I try to view it like as an asset to see things in a way or in a pattern maybe that oh. not everybody does. Of course. Um, but I think that for the writing for me like really came into play when I was in high school. And I was I had the opportunity to work with one of the best English teachers in the world, Rhoda Truboff. Oh. And I was in her class. And honestly, she gave me a D on my first essay. <gasps> you know, what? I didn't do such a great job. I had really struggled with learning how to write, you know, that academic academic essay that she was looking for, but she showed me and she was great at explaining what she was looking for. And after she showed me, I got it, you know, and of course I started doing a lot better um, in her course. Um, But then she also did an independent study with me. And in that independent study, I think I must've been either my junior or my senior year in high school. I honestly don't really remember because it was quite a long time ago, but she would uh, let me write. Uh, Basically they were, Uh, little autobiographical stories um, that I would Uh, submit to her usually once a week. And we'd spend an hour a week uh, going over the the stories and thinking about how to make them stronger. She'd also give me suggestions on things to read. And so that experience really fueled my passion for writing uh, and my commitment to it. To have somebody invest in me made me want to invest in myself and in writing. So that was a truly transformative experience. You know, the power of the story. Does she, of the teacher, does she have any idea of what effect she had on you? I hope so. I think so. We've been in communication uh, over the years, uh, pretty recently, like two or three years ago. Um, and so hopefully I've communicated that to her. She's since retired um, and right. is living, I think, still in D.C., you know, with her family. But if I were yeah, a teacher, there's nothing. Uh, if I were like a high school teacher, I can't imagine a greater triumph and learning that my my relationship with a student led to her career her her own passion that seems to me as good as it gets maybe mm-hmm. what do you think well, i was lucky to, to be exposed to her yeah and yeah. i was also very lucky because my older sister was an avid reader and so she would often read to me because she'd get so excited uh, that uh, about the book that she was reading that she uh-huh. had to share. And so oftentimes I have fond memories of my big sister uh, and often exposing me to books I normally wouldn't get into, like fantasy books and uh, right. murder mysteries and romance novels. Yeah. Uh, she would oh, read those okay. to me when I was younger. So I was really lucky to have a big older sister who was into reading. Well. That's great. Well, so, all right, so you get into it now. The um, Hive Mind came out, I'm going to I'm gonna say 2017, was that 16? When did it come uh, out? It was 2015. I can't oh, believe that's it. uh, been about gosh, that six years ago now. Yes, it was like oh uh, September God. or October of 2015. What the hell is happening? Okay, so that was 2015. <laughs> um, I, I was actually, I mentioned in my intro, um, I interviewed the, the poet, the slam poet, the performance poet, um, Sabrina Benaim, and we were talking about the link between memoir and, and poetry. And I write essentially personal essay now is pretty much it, which is memoir-ish, I would say. It's in the family. Um, I always feel like that poetry, is there's a real link between that, that you're drawing on your own life. Because it seems like a lot of your work is draw your poet, your poetry, at least the stuff I've read in Too Many Seeds, is certainly drawing on your own life experiences. And isn't that sort of like memoir where you're translating your life experience into an artistic ex- creation? I think it is. I think it is. And I think that with poetry, we have this wonderful ability to capture a moment, like a scene yeah. time, a snapshot. Yeah. 
so to yeah. speak, of an emotional uh, and physical experience. Uh, and I so appreciate yeah. that about poetry. We don't have to get into the who, what, when, where, why, or right. write for right. so many pages, but just in a moment right. you can capture uh, maybe through an image or several that emotional, physical experience for your audience. Um, and it's very autobiographical, I think, in its nature. I it can't. I think most for most poets it is. I I mean there are some I suppose who work and almost treat it like fiction in a way. But I think for most it has an, a very strong autobiographical uh, quality to it. And yours certainly did. And and you 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 know um, do you work when? So I write. I well for a time I was writing five a week, five little four hundred word essays a week for my magazine. And I thought of them like poems because each one was one basic idea you know maybe one small story but one sort of thing so they felt like poems but I would find myself working thematically like a certain I'd be talking about <laughs> momentum or fear or the imagination and, it, and I would sort of work through different ideas for time do you find that with your own poetry that you like like a painter you find yourself working thematically a little bit I think definitely I do, uh, especially with the poems in Too Many Seeds. They're kind of different threads that are woven throughout uh, the poems. Yeah. Uh, one main thread is the experiences that I had working in restaurant and catering kitchens and kind of being immersed yeah. in the sensory uh, focus uh, with food and getting really intimate with my food in that way. Other threads and kind of things that uh, there were like little obsessions, you know, I like to think of uh, in the poem series uh, involve my work on an organic farm back in 2006. Yeah. And, you know, all of the things that uh, that surrounded me in that environment and that moved me to be really passionate and intense with food. Uh, and then there are also uh, dried fruit factory poems, uh, which came out of my experiences working for a dried fruit factory. <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, in uh, California on the edge of the, the central Valley and seeing how the workers uh, that worked in that particular factory were treated, but also how the fruit was treated was really in stark contrast to my experiences on that organic farm. And so right. I say like there, there are scenes and there are certain settings too that really capture my imagination. I'm a very kind of landscape and setting oriented writer. And when I experience a setting that feels poetic, I often write about it in a series of poems. It's an interesting challenge because landscape is by and large, well, I mean, there's things moving around in it, but it's a, it's sort of, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a place. It's a, it's, Still, it's not, I mean, there is action, but that's not usually what we, I think of like a landscape painting, but you have to talk about the, emo, I mean, it seems to me every poem to be successful has to have emotional movement in it, doesn't it? At some, some kind of movement. Yeah. Or is that just me? I think so. Yeah. No, I think definitely. So I think there has to be an emotional heart and a sense of urgency associated yeah. with a poem to really take off for somebody else or otherwise it just kind of is stale. And it, it's emotional kind of like a weight and power that you want to yeah. use your, with your audience with that. And that's why it's, it's challenging to be able to do that. I think Yeah. Uh, in, in a way that actually moves the audience and they actually feel something. Um, and it impacts them. <laughs> that's right. Cause you're basically like you're somewhere and you go, Oh man, look at this. That's awesome. Now, how in the hell do I convey the awesomeness in a 70-word 
poem. How do you capture yeah. the awesome? It's all just felt in you in the moment. You don't just want to say, look at this. I know it sounds so obvious, but it's, it's the interesting challenge of the poet because it's not simple. No, it's not. And I think within writing and within poetry, there are a lot of ways we can communicate that experience, right? There's imagery that we can use in getting very detailed on the sensory aspects of an experience. Yeah. Uh, there's like a figurative language, so using a metaphor or simile or personification sure. to compare yeah. that experience uh, with something else. There's also repetition on the word level uh, or, yeah. you know, on a, a on a, a sound level and it, that can really transport the audience to a place and make them feel something. So it's fun to play with all those different possibilities that are in, I think, a written text. I shouldn't say that's just in poetry because you can, of course, do that in sure. memoir writing or in fiction writing as well. Yeah. So talk to me about food. Uh, for someone, I, I mean, I like food. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so do but, I. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I enjoy it. I, I like it. But like, how would you explain to someone who says, well, yeah, I like to eat it. And, you know, if someone wants to cook it for me, great. But if I have to, I will. How would you explain that? Because is your love of food, is it creative primarily? Is it sensory? Where, where, did, where did it really begin? Because both things, of course, involve. But which is more the draw to it? Is the creative side of it or just the pure touch, taste, smell of it? Gosh, you know, I think it's both. For me, I have those memories I think that ignited kind of this uh, fascination with food in me happened in my parents and my grandparents garden when I was younger. Also when I was young in my twenties, I worked for nurseries that produced basil and different herbs like rosemary and thyme and so forth. Uh, And I did also an internship at Monticello's, uh, Center for Historic Plans, and we'd get a lot of produce and be able to bring that home, and I'd end up cooking right. with it. But for me, all those, like, that, the experiences are really grounded in the sensory, like the tang of a raspberry on my tongue and how it just, it, like, floods my body with this sensation. I mean, that's right. something that is the most powerful connection that we have, I think, to the world outside of ourselves. Uh, it's easy to get caught in the mind. But when you eat something, you're there in the here and now in such a, a powerful way. Right. There's nothing else like it. Right. Uh, so for me, I guess it's the sensory that really drives it. Um, but there are other parts too, like the creativity and is a like, it's a fun way to explore the possibilities with that ingredient. I don't like to fancy things up too much. I came from a school of training with like culinary arts where you take a good ingredient and you don't mess it up (laughs) and you let it, it's true, come through. So you don't take a a vegetable and turn it, you know, into something super complicated beyond what it is. Uh, Basically you add minimal things to it and you try to add a minimal number of ingredients to each dish to really let the true flavors come forth. But even within that, there's an immense amount of creativity that you can bring in. One of my favorite things to make is uh, our sauces. And I love to play with seasonal uh, ingredients in my sauces. And it's really incredible what you can do with this concept of a salsa. It doesn't Uh have to just be cilantro, tomato, onions, and maybe a tomatillo. There's no reason why you can't make a strawberry salsa or play with pomegranates and Castelvetrano olives in your salsa. Um, And so I love, like, playing with sauces and the endless variations on the classic aioli sauce, uh, 
yeah. are just like this oh, yeah. limitless in terms of the possibilities. So that really fires me up. I love being creative in that, See, that manner. Gabrielle, I'm getting hungry now. I I'm getting so much. <laughs> this is tasting good. Yeah, you know, um, and the salsa. And I used to, I worked in restaurants for years, and I they I I learned about there was a world of salsas beyond tomato and cilantro, and and I was fascinated by it. And and it's the it seems to me it's the combination. It's the interesting things of how things talk to each other, how the spice mm. and the sweet. I'm, I have this to, pasta. I make pot, I make uh, pizza every Sunday, and they, I found this recipe with honey in the sauce. And I was like, what? And oh man, Ooh. it just made. It made it, baby. It did. That little bit of honey. When my son made it, he's like, there's honey in this? What the hell is going on? I was like, tell me it's honey. So anyway, <laughs> but it's a combination. You know, it's sort of, you know what it's like? It's like writing. Like the words themselves don't have, I mean, they have some value, but it's they're all their combination that makes them come alive, right? So isn't it sort of similar? Yeah. It is. It is. I love the way that you put that. It's like conversation uh, that yeah. is happening between the ingredients and they're conversing yeah. with each other. They're having a dialogue, yeah. right? And it may play yeah. out differently in January than it would in July. But it's That's right. To, to play with it and see what they can say to each other. I loved what you said about like how the taste of a tang of a strawberry roots you in the hair. And I do think that that's one of the great things about the body, including the mouth, you know, from where we receive <laughs> the food, which is that it, it the body is in the present moment, whereas our mind. Gabrielle, I don't know about your mind, but my mind goes all different places other than the here and now sometime. And it's great to come back. Does that make sense? It is. Yes. It's great to come back. And you're grounding yourself through your tongue, right? But then it yep. goes all the way down to your belly uh, yes. and then up through your heart, to your mind. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we got to be, well, that's what I love about writing too, because, you know, I don't know, like when you write, I always tell my students, like you're writing memoir, but it's not about the past. It's still about the present. Like I'm always writing about mm. the present, even if I use the past. Does that resonate with you? Like I want to write it about does. where I am now. Yeah. yeah. It's really neat that how that operates in terms of the memoir, that, because I think we can write about an experience that we have five years ago. Yeah. Uh, right now, and it's going to be slightly different than we when we write about it next year or the year after. Yep. And so that there are kind of different lenses we put on, and very different yeah. than we would have written about it during that moment. And so each time there's like a layering, or maybe yeah. it's that layering kind of isn't the right way to express it. Maybe it's the unveiling that occurs. Yeah. I think each time we write about an experience. Well, we keep changing. We keep changing. Our understanding keeps changing. We evolve. I hope right and so like i know you've written about like there's there's stuff in this about um your beloved who passed back i guess was it 2000 when did, when did she pass oh was that it? wasn't it wasn't a beloved it was just somebody well i shouldn't say just somebody i worked with but it was a woman that i worked with on a farm right who was in a relationship yeah. with somebody else on that farm so we were right. friends and she was my mentor right. she was beloved but not in the Romantic. Right, and not in the romantic <laughs> sense, but but the death, but that keeps coming back, you know, as it would. But I would think your even your relationship to that would continue to evolve. You know, it does, it does. I wrote about that experience in depth. Uh, right. So Hive Mind was published in 2015, but I wrote most of that book uh, probably from 2007 to 2010 or so. Um, And in that, you know, I had a very different, I think, way of viewing it when I wrote the book than I do now. Um, Now, many years have passed. I'm older. I've had a lot of different uh, life experiences. 
both, you know, of course, positive and, and negative. And I think with each experience that you have, you come to maybe a different understanding of why people make the decisions yeah. that they do. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Well, we change. Well, so, all right. So, Gabrielle, what's on your mind these days? Like, what has got your attention? What are you, what are you creatively focused on these days? I don't want to talk politics or anything. We don't do that here. But what has got your attention? <laughs> Right now, what's, what's, what's Gabrielle thinking about when she's not, while she's cooking or when, she, what is it? What's going on? Well, I think a lot about our relationship with food um, still, and how still, things are shifting oh. and growing, I think, yeah. you know, for our culture and our society at large in terms of how we approach the food that we consume. I think yeah. there's a, a growing awareness uh, that we should capitalize on and push and uh, really help to to develop, uh, and that's the relationship with our food and this awareness of where it comes from and how the people that grow it are treated. And I think that really matters uh, uh -huh. in terms of what we eat expresses, I think, how we treat ourselves, but it also expresses how we treat the natural world around us. And so if we're eating food that has been sprayed with pesticides, and all these chemicals, and if we're expecting the people that grow our food to get exposed to these chemicals, that says a lot about us, as opposed right. to if we're willing to take the time and effort to see where our food comes from, know its sources, know that farmer or that rancher that produces it. I think it's going to nourish us, but also the natural environment on a whole new level. Uh, and I think right. that really does matter. And I don't, I think there's this misunderstanding in America that that's an elitist concern and that uh -huh. only rich people have time to think about that. Because <laughs> right. right. I think that's false. And I think that is doing a disservice to people at all socioeconomic levels in our country. I think that yeah. is a basic right that everybody should have, whether they're on welfare and barely making it or barely making it with a minimum wage job. Or if they're a millionaire who's like having a high time in LA, <laughs> like I think everybody right. deserves that type of food access. And I feel yeah. like we're on this, the edge of that actually happening in our country. Uh, and I feel like pushing that in multiple ways to make it happen would just be right. wonderful uh, and so, so important see, for us. Do so you feel hope, hope for this particular passion, this food awareness? You think there's actually, I mean, it, I, as someone who is not, intimately involved in it, it certainly resonates with me. I see more people talking about it now than I did when you and I were growing up in the 80s, for instance. I don't think I remember anyone talking about it. So uh, so you see this the greater, you think that you're not the only one. You're not the only one. Sarah. No. There are so many wonderful organizations out there that uh, in their own way are exploring this. Uh, there's this wonderful group that I do some writing and editing for, uh, and they have Love to Table is the name of it. And mm -hmm. it's just such an inspiring organization. And what they do, their mission is to give homeless people and those who are less fortunate access and opportunity to farm-to-table meals. So oh, food that okay. comes from a farm, and then yeah. they spend time – making the dish that is expressing that seasonality and that fresh produce and then serving it to homeless people um, who is serving it to them in a restaurant prior to COVID. Uh, but then, yeah. if, you know, that's not possible because of COVID uh, presenting it to them in a way that makes them feel special and loved. And, you know, that's just one example of how this can play out. There are lots of other possibilities. Uh, there's right. this community garden, uh, 
concept that in some areas has really taken off, uh, specifically yeah. areas like in the San Francisco Bay Area and here in Sacramento where I live. Uh, you can uh-huh. see a lot of local communities have this uh, little community garden. And unfortunately, the space is so limited that people have to sometimes apply and wait for a few years wow. to gain access wow. to that. But yeah. there's no reason why we can't have that, I think, in every community in this right. country. And we can actually fund that, I think, with our tax money. And honestly, it wouldn't really take a whole lot to make that happen. No. But it could transform the way people eat in such a yeah. – in a powerful and real and immediate way. You know, it's so funny. I was I was watching, of all things, listening to you, all I keep thinking about is I was watching Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, where Jerry Seinfeld is talking to the comedian, um, I can't remember his name, he's an Italian-American, and he sort of plays that, that's his shtick. I mean, I think it's, it's genuine, but he's, you know, he comes from a Sicilian family in America. But the big thing for that family was the garden. Like, you, you, that's what you do. You plant the garden. You eat from it. You get your tomatoes there. You get your herbs there. You get your zucchinis there. And it, my wife and I had a long conversation about that, about were they doing it because it was just traditional or because it was economic, or but they would do it in their little backyard in Brooklyn if they could. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool, and it's certainly cheaper than going to the store, and it's probably healthier too. Uh, and uh, so it's been, it's a it's a concept that's been around in some communities, but it's others, I guess, have to learn it in a way that it's even an option. Yeah, I think so. And there's no reason why we can't uh, provide that opportunity for everybody. My family's Sicilian, and so I grew up with a mom who some of her like moments of bliss that she remembers from her childhood, they were in her grandmother's gardens uh, where they right. grow tomatoes and peppers. And there's people that recently immigrated from Sicily and yeah. it was out of the economic necessity that they did it, but that's not right. what my mom remembers. She doesn't remember the poverty, right? She remembers right. the bountiful produce and like the excitement that one has as a little kid wandering through a garden. But I think that we, uh, I think as a nation, it's essential for us to provide everybody with that opportunity. Whether they're in an inner city in Oakland or in Harlem or in a nice place in like the Berkeley Hills, uh, I think it's really essential for us to provide that type of access. And honestly, it wouldn't really cost that much money. I think that in America, there's a city, oh, it costs a bunch of money. We can't do it. We don't want to do it. It's not a practical way to spend our money. But we cut back a little bit on military spending and put it in our gardens. Oh, my God. Like, we'd be so much better off as a nation. Or, you know, hey, maybe in our schools, then the schools can have gardens and we can teach them about that process. Gabrielle, I'm going to wait to see you at the congressional hearing when they are (laughs) going to say, I knew her when. There she is. And you can set them straight. All right? You can do it. If anyone can do it. Sounds like a plant. (laughs) All right. All right. Listen. So if people, it's GabrielleMyers.com. If people want to learn about your YouTube cooking channel, your recipe blogs, your, it's all there, right? They can, that's the hub of your internet empire. (laughs) It is. You can access it all. (laughs) GabrielleMyers.com. Check it out. You people who love food, go check it out. She's awesome. All right. I got one more question for you. I've asked you this question before, but you know what? It's interesting. The answer changes. Yes, it does. So I'm going to ask it to you again. If writing, all the writing you've been doing or have done has taught you anything, it's taught you what? To be in love with life. I think ah. writing is one way that we can embrace every moment of every day and we can have access to that special space within us that is appreciative and in love with life. Yeah, that's a 
Good answer, Gabrielle. Good answer. I approve. <laughs> ah, well, listen. Hey, I'm so glad I got you back on the show. Uh, have a great whatever end of the year, great new year, whatever you do. And uh, good luck with the book. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Gabrielle. Take it easy. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. Okay, people. Yes. Yes. Well, it's good year. Good to you. Oh, season's over. It's okay. But love life. Love it. Love it. Love it. Appreciate it. Uh, all of you out there, I want to say thank you. Thank you. Have a great year. Have a great holiday, whatever you do. And I want to thank my, my, uh, my fabulous producer, RJ. And uh, meantime, find something you love to do, people, and do it.